Welcome to the Who Cares About the Name podcast. I'm Tom, joined as always with my co-host Isaac, and today we're talking with Bob Boris about the invention process, Mennonite manufacturing, and the education system. Enjoy! So we're here with uh, Bob Boris. Bob, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Oh, okay. Well, um, thanks for having me here. I'm from Ontario, and I have been a high school teacher for most of my career, about 28, 29 years. I've also been an entrepreneur for many of those years, just uh, making inventions and creating things on my own, trying to market them, sell them, produce them, which is uh, quite a learning experience. I've learned lots from my mistakes. That's good. And you have a, a number of patents. Exactly. Numerous ones, a lot now. Probably I've let I've let go and not uh, renewed the uh, <clears throat> the maintenance fees. But uh, yeah, over the years I had many many different patents. All right. So maybe uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us about some of the some of these inventions. Sure. Um, as with most inventions, I find that they come out of some necessity or something that you see is a problem to yourself and then you say, you know what, probably other people experience the same issue. And um, uh, and that's what happened to me. And then you try to sort of market this and, and appeal to other people's needs, other people's problems with the solution that you've created. Uh, some of the things were very simple. I mean, when my uh, oldest son was playing baseball and before they go up to bat, these little kids, everyone's swinging their bat. And then of course he walked right into one by his buddy was hitting, you know, swinging, practicing, and smacked him in the head. Um, so I, I thought, well, I, we should create a little uh, a safety net, a little enclosure that's portable, that little kids, they can go in there and swing like crazy, but they're isolated and protected from the rest of the team. That's a, instead of sitting on the bench as they should be, they're running around, picking up stones and whatever. So that was sort of the first of the inventions that I came up with and uh, numerous ones. Of course, I thought they were the greatest things in sliced bread. And then, of course, next thing you're going to do is get a patent on it and protect your idea. And I have spent many, many tens of thousands of dollars on uh, patent lawyers. And at this point, years later, I, I would almost, I'm at the point where I think if I have a good idea, it's almost better just get out there, market it, get it to market first. And if it's good, someone will copy it. <laughs> and then you can maybe come back with yours as the original uh, club or the original mousetrap. Re-release it as mousetrap classic. Right on. That's it. And so much is about branding. Eh? Branding. You, I've seen, I, I've been doing this for about... 20 some years and I've seen people with really crappy stupid ideas but it's branded it's marketed brilliantly and it takes off whereas you can have someone that has a fantastic idea but it's not marketed well it's not branded properly and it goes nowhere yeah, that's the unfortunate uh, unfortunate truth in engineering is doesn't matter how good your idea is people still need to know about it yeah, and and the consumer is the one that will dictate. Yeah, do they like it or not? Will will they buy it? So you're a big believer in free market, and how it can how it's it's self correcting methods are a, are a solid way to uh, you know measure up value. Yeah, that, no, it's very true. I mean, the the market will tell you if 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 what you've got is any good and if they like it. So you can spend all kinds of money on patents and protecting your idea. And it's not really, I mean, you think it's the greatest thing, but uh, it really may not be according to the market, the consumer. So in your process, do you ever do a sufficient amount of market research before you go and apply for the patent? Oh yeah, yeah, um, definitely. That's, that, that saves you money. The more... Uh, research and the more work that you can do on your own beforehand saves you money for the lawyer doing it. Um, in the original day, early 90s when I was doing these things, 
the internet really wasn't even around. So you had to go to the library and research Thompson registers and find manufacturers of this and that. And it was much more difficult, but nowadays you can get into the, you know, like, uh, I think it's, uh, the, um, intellectual properties, you know, for Canada and the U S has another department there itself. You can find a lot of stuff. So that pre searching, pre research, and before you actually even go to someone to help you, uh, file uh, properly. Now, now you're talking about this is research. If there's already a patent that's in existence, I, I, yeah. I was I was more aiming for the question of do you do the consumer market research beforehand, and and what are the what's the process that you go through for that? Yeah, that that's a that's a. I mean, it's a really good question because there's a whole thing of of you can patent it from from time of first date of first disclosure. So if you start disclosing your thing to everybody and you can get them to sign a non-disclosure agreement, etc., an NDA, but um, as you get it out there, then you've kind of, you know, you're, you're using up your time in which to, uh, when it was first uh, publicly announced. But it is very important to get either, even if it's just family, friends, but you want to get objective people uh, people in the say in that business that it's involved in and get them to uh, give you honest feedback. So some of the new marketing analysis methods uh, that I've noticed have been the Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Essentially, you create your prototype, you get it out there, see how well it does. And if it doesn't do well, then you don't sell it. Uh, how do you how do you feel about those kind of uh uh, methods because it's very you know very hip now like it's, it's the it's what all the startup guys are doing they're essentially following the startup guy rule book uh by adhering to that yeah i i go on them quite often i i've used both i've done a project a new invention idea and went through kickstarter and then another one through indiegogo and they didn't go very well <laughs> just must be my lousy ideas or something <laughs> But uh, you see what is out there, and um, some of the stuff <clears throat> looks really amazing. Yeah, the great source for getting feedback and, uh, and also raising capital, which is crucial for coming up with a new idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, some of those things, I'm sure you've seen them on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Um, they look simple enough, whatever, and they look real, but I'm sure the people haven't actually created maybe a, a working prototype that they just look, make it look like it does work. Yeah, we have a term for that is vaporware. Ah, it's, yes. And it's essentially all you do is create a case. Usually, if, if you're good, you create a case. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a, a rendering or something uh, like that. I think the best idea that I've seen there is a... Uh, silicon molded coffee cup holder that you can fit a beer can in so that you can like <laughs> fold it up and put it in and it was super funded and this is a like nowadays the videos that are are on there and the, and the production value just in the videos alone are just ridiculous and this guy looked like he filmed it with his camera yeah, and yeah. it was just a good idea <laughs> and 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 it took off and you know they like raised all its money and people were really into that what what do you think your uh the best idea you've had is it's very the very opinionated question <laughs> um gosh the best oh gosh i had so many ideas um they're all your children. They're all great. <laughs> yes, yes. No um, favorites. <laughs> um, no, the I created um, back in the day when concussions in hockey and sports was a big thing. I created a heads-up alert device for training in sports, particularly hockey. It could transfer to various sports. The idea is that if you see a, a great player like a Gretzky or somebody plays with his head up and uses his peripheral vision to see where people are. And when he goes to pass, he doesn't have to look down at the puck to see where it is and then pass it to the guy. He just passes while he's still looking ahead and keeping his head up, which at the time there was big concern about concussions, especially a, a player like Bobby Orr. There's some famous people who got hit. Eric Lindros used to get hit a lot. They were heads, they played with their head down and guys would just stand up as they're coming and boom, 
just uh, crash them. So um, this was a device that hooked onto an existing helmet during practice and it would beep and give a signal when you your head lowered below a set uh, amount of degrees. Mm. And um, so great idea. Uh, we went to CCM, to JOFA, to iTech, to um, the big company in the state, Nike, all these guys. They, we got great feedback and they said, if you put about another 60000 into developing and in prototyping, come back and see us. We'd be interested. But they didn't want to put any of their money in. <laughs> no, no. So we had already put, what, 20, 30, 40000 in patent protections on it. Or at least to get it patented, and then and then uh, and we did, and um, and then there's maintenance fees all the time, and um, yeah, it just it's it's a real struggle, but um, that was a great invention we had. Um, one of the other uh, ones more recently has to do more with technology and education system, and um, that uh, I think those have been really good. Although timing is a key factor. I had created this idea about six years ago. At that time, there was nothing. By the time we got it going, just working part-time on our own, it was about three years later. And by that time, there was already some things on the market, just coming on the market. So now you had competition. Yeah, definitely from my startup experience, essentially, we, we would look at a technology and we would, anybody, would we look at something and say, anybody can do this. We have to be the first ones to do it. Yeah. We have to do yeah. it fastest. And that's kind of what we thought we brought to the, the uh, table um, in terms of the kind of a novel, a novel way of doing mm -hmm. something. It's the only way that you would succeed. So you bring something novel and we weren't clever or creative enough to, <laughs> to think of anything novel. So it's like, okay, let's just take this and this and merge it together because it just, it just formed and get it out there fast. Um, and that never really happened for us either. <laughs> lots of lots of uh, learning experiences in, in failure, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's that's a key thing. I mean, you either you're first to the market, that's really important, or you've got something that's you know protected with patent, or there's some um, advantage that you have. Um, maybe you've got some real clever marketing. You you know the target market well. You've done a lot of research, market research. All those are key factors and, and, you know, you hope that you'll get a, a real break, that you will be kind of the, uh, the leader in one of those areas. Hmm. Now, most of the, uh, uh, most of the inventions that you've had were, were physical things. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and where do you do your, or where do you, where did you plan on doing your manufacturing and where did you do the manufacturing for the small quantities of those? Ah, good point. Um, it's really, yeah, it's really important to do. I mean, for a while you make your prototypes in your garage or whatever on the barbecue or something <laughs> with hot, red hot irons and pokers. But, uh, yeah. but uh, no, you obviously have to have some uh, uh, manufacturing facility or ability to, to sub, sub out those jobs. Um, I was fortunate in the Waterloo region. It's quite famous for the Mennonite population around here. Uh, if you know the old order Mennonites, horse and buggy type of thing. And uh, quite interesting, I learned a lot about their community. Um, they have no electricity in the houses. The wife is in there and she makes the meals. They got a kerosene lamp and, you know, I guess, uh, you know, just for burning a stove and that kind of thing. Oil or gas. Friendly. But, um, but out in the shop, anything for business, CNC presses, fax machines, um, like computers, uh, incredible stuff, powder coat painting setups that they're doing work for Ford, GM, etc. And you wouldn't even realize it's an old barn and it looks like, you know, nothing's happening. There's a few bales of straw probably in there. But the stuff that goes on is amazing. So I uh, hooked up with a lot of the Mennonite people. And, of course, the price was very good. Um, then you do always have to watch quality control. There's uh, another issue in, uh, in any kind of work like that. So was that a bigger issue? Like, was it a payoff between quality and, and price? Or did, were they fairly vigilant in their, in their quality control? 
not yeah pretty good i mean the odd time there would be some batches it's not as much as asa you know a big factory in the city and they've got you know full-time person is quality control and they're inspecting things however you know what you're going to be paying for that so it's a trade-off so i found that um yeah the prices were great and and the work was generally very good if there were issues with a bad batch quality control they would take it back and redo them okay so yeah, so, so you were essentially responsible for them <clears throat> at least in the small smaller quantities you were responsible for the quality control in that basically yeah doing your, your me. right right how did you discover that there was a community of mennonites that were they were basically prototype builders this is so I understand that they built things for Ford and for Chevrolet yep. or whatever they were doing, um, manufacturing small parts for to make cash, right, or to make mm-hmm. just to have a steady income or something. How did you come to convince them or have somebody who told you that they would be willing to do things that were private, some kind of low quantity? It it seems yeah, it seems it seems so out there. How does that how does that even happen? Yeah, that that's. <laughs> Good, good point. Um, I would say, fortunately, as I was going around to the different companies and getting quotes, talking to them about what their capacity is, what the work they could do for making molds, injection molding, extrusion, etc. Um, somebody happened to mention about one of these Mennonite guys who was a mold maker. And I, I guess I queried him enough and bugged him and finally got sort of an approximate address of out in the country where this guy was and went out there and uh, found him and uh, yeah he made a mold for me for like I don't know eight or ten grand at the time when every other quote I was getting was 30 and 40 grand. How long ago was this? Oh yeah that's probably 20 some years ago. Um, Very good for that. Oh yeah, but since then I've now he's moved away, but I found other people who are in and and mold making is 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 a big thing. Um, you've got to get that. But now if you know about three D printing, um, those you can produce some fantastic prototypes with three D printing at a very reasonable cost to get to see what it really looks like physically, handle it, um, <clears throat> how it moves, how the properties work. And so uh, I highly recommend that for people who are building a physical product that might be unique if, if possible. Um, but yeah, the Mennonite, um, then I was introduced, and again, it's a very tight-knit community, sort of as the Amish are, I'm sure you're aware. And so then you get introduced to so-and-so, the brother-in-law who who does, he's got a, uh, you know, injection mold shop. And then, you know, this other place, you know, Joe Martin's MFG manufacturing. You have no clue what's going on there. You go in, there's home hardware trucks backed up, loading things, parts for big corporations in the States or all over Canada. It's amazing. Um, Then I kind of met the godfather of the mafia, of the Mennonite mafia, he had like a three buggy garage, so he was uh, yeah pretty <laughs> awesome, and he had his hand in everything. He was bringing stuff in from China, making it. He they were buying wood lots in northern Ontario forests to supply the wood they needed for making toboggans, for making wagon wheels, for making uh, hockey sticks, lacrosse sticks, etc. So it was bird houses, all kinds of things. Hmm. Seems like the the Mennonite community is out for blood to try and take the rug out from uh, underneath the Chinese manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's good. I mean, they're a tight knit community, and and one you know one guy does this, and then they ship all the parts to this other Mennonite guy who's maybe older or you know has some disability, and he sits there and just shoves stuff in little bags and staples them shut or something all day, and. Uh, um, a lot of them don't have, you know, they don't uh, accept money from the government in terms of pensions or they don't pay into different things. So then how do they keep their costs so low? How do they, how is that possible that they can undercut the lowest bid by by 30%? Well, they don't, I mean, as I understand it, and I've seen, like, they don't have OHIP, so they don't pay in for OHIP, for example. Mm-hmm. So when something happens, they go to Dr. Duff to pay cash and the whole community helps. And, um, 
and like say I've got there's a factory that does all kinds of steel manufacturing and it's all run by generators and we're talking like you know 10 ton presses 20 ton presses and CNC machines going and all of a sudden at noon hour the the generator stops it's lunchtime for a half hour so there's no more working because there's no power everybody goes over the lunch pail the boss goes into the house, the wife's prepared some food, they eat, 12.30, generator goes back on, get back on the floor and start working. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I think it's that community spirit that helps them uh, keep and keep the costs low. They don't, yeah, they don't pay their people terrifically wages, but I guess uh, it certainly is enough that they need what they for what they need. Well, I, I guess it's, if they live in that community already, then they... What do they even need it for the money? Uh, it's that's that's the second question. Like, because that's it's strange because it, it it flops back and forth. I mean, I understand if you could, they live a minimalist lifestyle in in very much so much more than most people. Uh, they yeah. they just all they need is food and a place to to live and then something to do during the day. I guess this just fills that in. So that's the only I guess that's the only equation where that kind of works. Yeah, and and if they have lots of kids and. I mean, a lot of them, you know, finish a grade eight education and then high school is kind of optional. And maybe by 16, you stop going to school and you start working in the farm or the factory or both. Because many of these have little, you know, plastics manufacturing or or all kinds of different uh, factories or manufacturing on their property. And so the kids often start helping from real young up. I mean, I've seen, yeah, my goodness, some of the little eight-year-olds driving these huge wagons and combines pulled by horse and buggy, but, uh, and they got, you know, a whole bunch of seats and, and wooden blocks so they can sort of see over <laughs> over the horse and reach a, a pedal or whatever if it's <laughs> motorized. That's fascinating. That's all fast. That's, so fa- that's, almost, <clears throat> that's almost worth doing an entire podcast, <laughs> kind of going, diving into the Mennonite community and learning how they... How they operate? I mean, yeah, and you need it. You need it. You certainly need to be accepted, eh? And so, like, oh, so and so recommended me. Okay, now it's all right because I know that you know so and so. And then this person will recommend refer you to another guy. Mm-hmm. And now you you always I found you always have to use names of references so you're not just some strange English guy coming and trying to break into their community, but you've sort of been accepted. Uh, by them and so you kind of build the network as they refer you to one or one or the other you didn't have to do any strange rites of passage or anything or <laughs> yeah walk well, barefoot uh, over no, coals no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no no <laughs> yeah That's really cool interest interesting uh, uh community and um and i saw i mean they do tons of work that stuff make for home hardware uh, Canadian Tire, one of them was the main supplier of hockey sticks and lacrosse sticks for like Easton and Franklin, big names like that. And mm-hmm. um, and it's just, and nobody has a clue what's going on. You drive past there and there's this little barn and, you know, a house and some kids running around and you would have no clue what really, what's involved and going on behind the scenes. Have you ever thought about doing that yourself maybe? Building a nice barn where you're just gonna start taking contracts to build stuff. Yeah, I told my wife we'd turn the house into. I mean, it. you seem to have lo- you've you've delved so <laughs> delved so deep. You've seen them do it. I mean, the techniques must be rubbed off on you a little bit, right? You've been there for so long. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you need oh gosh, you need a lot of skills and you need the the manpower, and they've got that community which has the manpower. And, and, oh my God, like, to be honest, these guys are skilled at, at the various, uh, jobs they're doing, whether it's mechanical or technical or whatever. Yeah. You know, they use like AutoCAD. I mean, whatever. It's, uh, it's quite something. On, on that note too, when I was, when I was working in Ontario, there was a, a company right beside the place that I was working at and the guy hung himself because he tried to do just that, start a manufacturing business and uh, realize that it is impossible to compete with the global market. Um, and there was, you know, it must have been, there was no way out. He, and 
it's, it's one thing when you have such low living expenses and requirements, such as the Mennonite community, and it's another when you have to live in civilization and provide a certain amount for yourself and your family, and uh, you, know, you can't have those 30% less rates. You know, and, and the Mennonite community also doesn't seem like it's a uh, open market community, just from what you're saying, you know, you're giving the, the, you know, you have to essentially give references, this person knows this person knows this person. So it's not quite the same as having a website where they have automatic quoting for you for, <laughs> for this kind of stuff. Um, so I think you'll, you'll get... You know, in, in many facets, uh, definitely the Mennonite is probably one of the more interesting ones, but in many facets, you have these closed communities that essentially are able to support themselves or support each other. Um, yeah, and, and they give the jobs to each other, right? Yeah. To this family here or so-and-so's brother-in-law, like, so they do, you know, help each other out that way. Yeah. They're not bringing in someone else mm -hmm. from the outside. It's like, oh, this this guy over here just gave us, you know, a 20 cents less, or this guy does this much more. And uh, yeah, but you're not going to get that because you have that smaller community. I feel like in the whole field of manufacturing and molding, yeah. just because you deal every day with holding, pat, like holding, you're building something that could potentially be worth millions and millions and millions of dollars and i think that that that's kind of a natural that would be a natural way that it would operate anywhere between any of the molding factories or or anybody that's good at molding making making prototypes i think you're probably going to find that they they don't want to do anything unless it's word of word not 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 anything but i would feel like the best of the best would only take on jobs that they know were vetted by somebody else. And it's kind of like, because manufacturing is something that it seems whenever I hear about it, whenever any kind of company talks about building this or building that, it's always the hardest part. It always seems like you're going to either get it manufactured in China where you know you're going to get the best uh, price, but you like you you were you're just rolling the dice about how the quality, mm -hmm. or you're going to try to get great quality and keep it built in in country, but you got to know you got to know the Don to talk to the guy to, to talk to his brother to talk to the actual mold guy, right? Yes, I yes. I think I've seen that story a number of times and. Uh, you know what? If a movie, what's that movie called? Um, Joy. Uh, I don't know if you've any of you seen that. <clears throat> yeah, movie, Joy. Yeah, it's about so. about the woman that invents the. She invents the mop, the mop that you you just squeeze it oh, and you pull yes, a lever and, yes. it, and it I rolls it out. That. I saw that. And she goes to take her molding to a manufacturer, and they they build it, and then she has to pay like just out the out the ears for it, mm -hmm. and and then when she goes back. Like she just like by herself like sneaks in and then sees that they're like making slightly different copies of it like on their own time yeah and trying to cut her out because they don't know her right yeah. and she's yeah. not affiliated with any mob and then the like mobs come in mob members come in and, and it's very it's it's very very intricate and very somewhat dangerous it seems yeah. so yeah I think that we need more Mennonite manufacturing facilities and we need to set them up. That's my <laughs> oh good good well in terms of even just manufacturing i mean you know all across canada that it, that industry or that sector has taken a huge hit um and just from my experience in the water kitchen waterloo region um there are there used to be oh, numerous mold makers and i could go to you know oh, 10 of them and get different quotes and stuff and now there's like there's a couple you know, two, three, maybe four guys that, that, you know, I could approach to do the work. Everything has gone offshore. Everything's in China. Uh, if you do care about, you know, the economy and having things made, say, within Canada, it's good to do that and, and keep things here. But then, of course, it comes down to price. Is the price going to put you out of competition? So, so mm -hmm. uh, about, about that, too, I mean, I, I've... I've have a fair experience in injective injective molding and uh, or injection molding, <laughs> and uh, uh, w one of the things is it's that, that we use is a company called Proto Labs, and they have software 
that is so good that it does all the calculations and everything for you. CNC machine, essentially, if you don't need super, super uh, high resolution. Or high uh, tolerances. Uh, yeah, high, yeah, high tolerances. If you can design your thing to fit in with their tolerances, yeah. you can get these things done for sub uh, 10 grand. And they are, they are quality assured as well. They, 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 they stick to the tolerances in which you give and they do the testing and everything. Are they in and North America? They are from the United States. Yes. Oh, so, okay. so it, that is a scenario in which technology helps bring the cost down to the degree that it's, that it's doable. And then my very, we, we do have an individual, uh, molder, that, that we used the last job that I worked at and uh, his molds were instead of like six, six grand or so, it was more like 60 grand for a very tiny piece, uh, but he could get everything perfect. So he was incredibly skilled and when you need those incredibly high tolerances, that's who you go to. And so now, yeah, what, 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 what market is left for, you know, the mom and pop shop, you know, not the, not the crazy best in the world. This is, this is it. Uh, so I, I do see that kind of dying, but in the Kitchener Waterloo region, it's been expanding and growing. It hasn't been shrinking, even though the manufacturing, uh, has been going down, there's been new things developing and I, I, I I'm not entirely sure, but is, is the population raising? Here as well. Oh, all the population is growing for sure, big time, and because of of um, things like Communitech and the universities here, and BlackBerry was here, and so many of the open tech, so many of the um, uh, new technology startups and everything. The Accelerator Center is here, quantum physics lab, all kinds. Oh, you guys have a quantum physics lab here? Oh, it's the greatest in the world. Is it? It is. Mike Lazaridis, who was the founder of BlackBerry, has developed that. And it's, uh, I forget the exact name, it's um, uh, um, Institute for Quantum Physics or something. I'm sorry, I forget the name exactly, but it's, uh, oh yeah, it's amazing. They bring in um, people from all over the world. Uh, the one year, I think the honorary chair was Stephen Hawking. So then he was here oh, for nice. a while and gave some talks and everything. So yeah, it's quite an amazing uh, place. They're on the the verge of developing these quantum chips or whatever that uh, will be able to solve so many problems which we know about in math or physics, but we just computers these days can't can't physically do the amount of calculations that are necessary. And You're talking about D-Wave. <laughs> I, you know what? I was just reading about it, and I don't recall all the, uh, the ins and outs, but they're doing some amazing things there. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, when, when you saw like, I can understand if it's, like, uh, great uh, theoretical quantum things, but if you're talking about practical applications, then mm-hmm. uh, there's the, the, they're a, a direct competitor with D-Wave who has quantum computers out out there and of course you know when you're talking about mathematical calculations the true benefit of quantum computers are for uh the big boom in artificial intelligence and whatnot where you can do massively uh you can essentially do calculations very like at at the same time fast a large amount of the same type of calculations Uh at the same time and that's what the quantum computers are supposed to be good at doing and they have and they have working quantum computers out there it's just not cost efficient at, at the time right right how all these things start but anyways yeah so so your uh, next your next uh, little podcast go and find someone from the uh the center for quantum theory there oh yeah can you hook me up <laughs> um yeah i do know some people mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Hey, I, I work. I work with a guy whose uncle w- works at uh, at the Large Hadron Collider. Oh, really? So, that's yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. name name of a name. Yeah, yeah. And I I started. It was because one day I started to explain to him my limited knowledge of uh, superposition, <laughs> and and I was like, yeah, he's gonna he's just gonna drop his jaw. And then he's like, oh yeah, my uncle talks about that all the time. And I was <laughs> wow. like. Oh yeah, what does your uncle do? And he's like, oh, he works at CERN. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe actually, when I go down there, because uh, I'm, I'm probably going to visit there, uh, maybe we can we can set something up. 
for that. Mm-hmm. That would be really cool. Mm-hmm. This is much yeah. more sciencey. Than yeah. Than I yeah. thought. So you, I think it's. Oh, I'm just thinking. Then I think the name is officially the Perimeter Institute for Quantum Quantum Mechanics or Quantum Theory or something. So. But I'm sure there's not that many quantum things in Kitchener. So <laughs> no, easy enough, not, to, yeah, easy no. enough to find. I'll, 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 yeah. I'll or else they're like pseudoscience and they're just trying to sell you stained glass with <laughs> No, no, this is pretty legit. This is amazing place. Yeah. yeah. I definitely like I, I, I think from the research of the universities that I have done, I think Waterloo in terms of Canada, at least Waterloo does seem to be my favorite in terms of the atmosphere in which they encourage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's kind of why you get all these, like, blackberries essentially, essentially gone, uh, you know, and and instead of the town becoming a ghost town, which would happen if, say, a paper mill shut down or something, it, like, instead of yeah. people suffering, even more was created and mm-hmm. many more things are, are, are built off that. Yeah. So. You know, it's definitely an, an interesting, an interesting uh, city or town. I don't know what you want to call it in, in you know, the Kitchener-Waterloo oh, region. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now, uh, so I guess we can maybe move on to uh, some of the uh, education topics. Sure. Since you have... You said that you had invented uh, invented something to assist in, in learning or education. What, it, it, what was it that? It was basically by being an educator. And uh, how the how did the Mennonites help you okay. do that? They, no, they didn't <laughs> help me with this stuff. <laughs> this was uh, some other friends that I've hooked up with who have you know background in IT and graphic user interface and programming and that kind of thing. So this was a different. This was sort of out in the Mennonite uh, realm now. But yeah, it was basically a um, a communication tool because. Uh, the biggest thing in education these days, I mean, not the biggest maybe, but a very important thing is parent engagement. Um, uh, you know, keeping informed of what children are doing, what the, the student needs to work on, and getting the support and the engagement of, of the parent for the child's education. And we created a... Um, uh, we didn't quite have a true SMS bridge at the time to send a um, basically a... Uh, multi, um, almost a broadcast of, of messages to parents. We wanted to make it one way. We wanted to make it, uh, you know, text-based, although also um, because we know that most text messages are read within about the first three minutes. And um, and we also wanted to use it as uh, email. And there's there was, uh, by the time we got out there, there was some stuff uh, available free from some American companies. And um, so the timing was a little bit late. And then also anytime you deal with education, there's a ton of red tape. And so you can have the greatest idea, whatever, but you will run into all kinds of bureaucracy and red tape and all that. uh, Because obviously everything's funded from government and it's got to go through so many stages. Anyway, so that's that. That's sort of the one thing I mentioned there. We we've improved on that whole idea, that concept, and we've got a whole other uh, um, technology uh, model uh, for messaging communication called iSend, as well as uh, SnapLead. <laughs> it's a it's a fantastic uh, lead generator for any kind of uh, businesses. Many have just sort of content management uh, ideas. But uh, this Snap Lead actually generates legitimate leads, contact numbers, people, positions, etc. So, um, and the two are working to get hand in hand. So we're we're working on that. That's interesting. That is the economy now. Is yeah. almost well, not I wouldn't say exclusive. Very. There's lots of money in lead generation. That's what Google and Facebook essentially get their money for um, is, is trying to help, you know, advertisers get leads or, yep. you know, yep. yeah, many, many things. So, so well, that's, that's probably a, a good market to get into. Very competitive though. Oh yeah. Have a Stay lot tuned. of really smart people working on that. Well, stuff. again, I'm not very smart, but the guy I'm working with is very smart. So he's sort of, the big brains behind it and yeah. just the good looks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. So a, a little bit more on, uh, so I wanted to bounce some ideas off of you uh, in terms of uh, lots of people that I've seen, if you, if you look up, you know, if you believe what you read on the internet, mm -hmm. uh, lots of people are, are not happy with the way that kids are learning. And uh, the, the big red flag in the learning system is essentially the the testing and the the you know benchmarking uh, mm -hmm. of people, which I, I love the idea of benchmarking, but if it's not done correctly and in in the right kind of in the right frame mm -hmm. of reference, there's there's some some problems with that. So I, I'm wondering, you know, you, you had you had a uh, the, the education system does change, right? It has been changing, oh for sure, uh, and they're accepting of that, but it doesn't seem to be improving the learning of students in the school. Do, do you do you find that? Do you you know from your experience have you have you noticed a trend of you know. You know, at one point, maybe when you started, were they, did they seem to learn and understand more? Whereas now it's more, oh, I'm just going to take the last year's test, memorize how to do, you know, whatever, and then like do that the day before, go <laughs> to the midterm or the final, and then forget it all the next day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, education has changed uh, vastly. Um, I wouldn't say it's all for the better. I guess uh, I can't get fired now because I'm really yeah. tired. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just, sorry. Just so when you say that, I don't know if that was a joke or not. Is there a little bit of a silence? Are you not, are, you know, in that education system? Are you not allowed to say anything bad about it? I, it wouldn't really be wise to basically be super critical of your employer in any job. And your employer is is the school board, which is directly funded by the government, etc. And they set up policies, and you know through the education uh, ministry and all that. And I mean, if you disagree with them, um, and a lot of people do, with just sort of the, the new ways of doing things and teaching and the whole philosophy behind stuff. But um, it, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I think within, it's going to be very hard to affect change from within because you're, you're part of the system. I mean, recall that story of the guy out in uh, BC, uh, I think he was maybe a high school teacher or something. <clears throat> he had a student who um, I think only showed up for class like six days the whole semester and didn't do any work and he wanted to give him a zero. And I believe like the lowest mark you can give someone is a 30 and and he said no she this person was not there they did nothing and therefore i will not give them a 30 percent i and he, he was told he was supposed to i think instead he gave a zero and i believe this a long time ago my goodness my memory is kind of vague but i believe he was uh, fired for basically insubordination and um and it it did bring up one of the whole issues of, of how we evaluate students and what, you know, how you give marks and um, <laughs> for doing something, for demonstrating understanding and learning or for just being on a list. <laughs> now, now uh, so, some of the uh, things that I've looked up were more based on the U.S. education system mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, they... they I think right now they're at the, the common core state standards. Yeah. And so, so you have to, you know, teach that, that block and everybody has to, has to learn it and go, go through it. But I, I think that the teachers also get evaluated on a very impersonal algorithmic level. And uh, there's been a number of complaints that were, that were raised. I don't know if it was from the teachers, but, uh, uh, in, in, in a book called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, uh, there, there's somebody that says that you're basically using statistical models to try to see if a teacher is mm -hmm. good or not. And when that happens, there's so much pressure to essentially game the system, you know, both by teachers and by students now. Because, you know, you need to get good marks to get into a good you know, college yeah. to get into a good job. And, and, and there's this huge pressure. And I think even, even in China, there's been, uh, uh, in instances where, uh, 
an entire class was caught cheating and they threw a riot for not being able to cheat because everybody else apparently cheats because oh, this is my. such you know one of wow. these high high pressure situations so they they were upset that they couldn't cheat because now they're up against competition that can you know is that really fair right no, no it's not if everybody's if everybody's cheating but what kind of you know where do you draw the line yes it's valuable to test people but to do it to the degree where that's the that's the highest priority uh, you know is is yeah a challenge you're talking about standardized testing and there's a lot of various opinions on that um the education system in the united states is very different as i understand it from that in canada you i mean there are people who who want um, teachers uh, performance attached to or aligned with student achievement which you might see on a standardized test Mm -hmm. right so if the students do well hey the teacher did great they get good evaluation they may get bonus or something Mm -hmm. well anyone who knows much about you know just reality and and that if i would teach in a fairly affluent area i'm quite sure my students will do much better on a test than if I teach in a poorer area, low socioeconomic, many immigrants, people who are just learning English, and then they have the standardized test. And guess what? They're not going to do so well. So now, should my pay and my performance evaluation be tied to that? I don't want to teach there anymore. I want to go at, you know, and teach at Cherry Blossom School in the wealthy section. I believe that they do have a kind of a moving scale of it. Uh, where if if this is the consistent standard that that particular school is and you do better than that standard even though it might be lower than the overall right. it, that that reflects in a in a positive manner not a not a negative one i i believe that now that not, might not be true in the uh, it would make sense otherwise the pro, you know it's a very obvious uh, uh, mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. to deal with um but then you have and I know, I mean, it's not supposed to happen that teachers are not supposed to t- teach to the test. Yeah. I personally know numerous teachers yeah. who, who teach the whole year to the test, whether it's a grade three test, the grade six test, the grade 10 literacy test, which in, in Ontario are, there, are sort of your three standardized yeah. uh, testing years. And, um, you know, if you do that through a whole year, now, you may miss great opportunities to teach outside, things that come up, um, have some creativity in the lessons, but you probably will get very good results. And um, But then, does that not skew the results? Does that not... In fact, the one teacher I know got voted and was written up in the paper how fantastic he was because his student did so great in this, in this challenging school. Well, I know that he taught to the test the whole year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know... Uh, yeah, it's great, but uh, is that really what education's about? Yeah, well, that's what you get when you have those type of standardization methods. Is is now you get people trying to game? That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For what I've what I've read from the United States, the Common Core system that they have, how it works is they have they do have a bunch of standardized uh, levels for each grade and each each subject, um, mainly just. Mainly just the main subjects. They don't do like there's nothing core about English or any other subjects like that. So it doesn't really affect. It doesn't affect an entire school mm-hmm. or like an an entire school district. But what it does is it, it provides a whole bunch of lists for each subject that he, a student's going to have to be able to do by the end of a grade to be able to pass the grade. But what it does not tell you is how to teach that mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> the huge complaint is that they, they give all this information and then a, a teacher in an area that's that has, they have no way of knowing how to teach it mm-hmm. because it's nothing that they were teaching before. <laughs> and so then those students start would start to fail. But then there's all the arguments from the other side saying that if you have, you still have the group of teachers who just adapt and who've learned how to mm-hmm. teach what they need to teach to get the kids to do these, these things. But the, the, the biggest problem is that it created like this vortex of, of like it created an edu- education industry in essence, like a whole new one. <laughs> what happened was there was this huge uh, company that 
you they used to before they rolled out the common core from what i read this company they tested all of the uh the standardizations right they would they had this huge facility they spent a ton and ton of money just testing to see what the levels should be for each each grade and each subject and then and then they were given um the contract by the government and of course they cashed out and then what happens is the government had had no they don't have continued testing anymore so they just had this they they weren't testing it in across the United States. It was just like these small data pools that they had. And then when they implemented it, they tried. They thought that they were being smart by implementing this like reward system, where if a school like would get like the top students would score them so many points for that school, and then that school would get money essentially if they had a lot of good students. And so what happened was. They, the schools would spend a t- and then and then what happened was that same company that made all those standardizations changed itself and made it into a company that now provided material to help them learn the things that they wanted to standardize right so they they just made this co- this industry on their own from scratch and then these schools would spend millions of their budget getting this material so that they could get part of this reward it was something like 1.8 billion dollars was put up as part of the reward pool. But of course, when you have all this competition and nobody talking to each other, you end up getting like, yeah, you have all these great students and all these great education uh, uh, educators and everybody that uh, is, is worth being lauded. And then your school spent $20, $30 million on all these packages to try to help them learn things. And then from the pool, they get about four hundred grand, And so they just waste, waste money. And it's that's why people have been saying that it's a huge travesty, this Common Core thing. It's not just because it doesn't teach kids well enough. It's because it's also <laughs> just shoving money in the pockets of suave businessmen. Yeah, which, yeah, no guarantee that's helping the kids. And it's, yeah, created a whole kind of industry around that. Yeah, you can see yeah. some of the issues with that. Do you feel, do you have a specific way to teach? And like to follow that after, do you think that you'd be comfortable in a system that tells you what they need to do but not how to teach it or the other way around Mm. yeah you know that may depend on the teacher personally i think you're talking about like a very proscriptive curriculum one that says here you have to teach this this and this and this is how you have to teach it myself i don't like being told how to teach it because that is very dependent on the students you have in front of you what their background is, what their, their culture is, etc. And so you've got to be creative to, to bring the two together. This, this set of goals or expectations which should be met and knowledge that should be imparted, things a student need to demonstrate that they've got competency in, as well as then balance that with the students where they're coming from. And so uh, some teachers may like, you know, a very proscriptive curriculum. You've got to do this and this and this. Um, others find that that doesn't always do it because students are so different. And so if you let the teacher, again, I think if it's a good, creative, uh, dedicated teacher, they may find some really cool ways to, to teach. Um, very different, you know, outside of the box. But then others maybe just want to follow. Um, and for some students, that will work. But maybe not all. Just follow a very regimented uh, procedure. That is the ideal case is is to be able to adhere to each of the students as individuals instead of as a mass. Yep. And yep. and you know to try to find a balance because to 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 treat everybody as individuals doesn't work on a large scale, and to, to treat a, a, an individual as one of the masses doesn't work on an individual individual scale. So you have to kind of you know, I, I suppose that that could be one of the uh, the the big challenges for for teachers is, is to where where to find that that balance and, and where to kind of make those changes and efforts um, to to best suit the individual needs of the students. Yeah, I think it's a good, really good point. I think that's what differentiates good teachers from average teachers from poor teachers, for example. People who do that, and, and at least in my experience and in Ontario, I've seen those who have uh, training in special education because in special education, 
every student who has special needs has to have an individual education plan. And so things have to be individualized and geared towards their learning style, their needs, etc. And teachers who are good at teaching special education students are good, actually apply a lot of the same techniques. If you can teach the difficult students, you can teach the, you know, the more bright students or the students who, you know, pick up things easier. And so I found that, yeah, those who are, are trained in that, uh, in special education, make actually really good teachers because they can transfer those skills and knowledge to teach, uh, say, regular students. I've heard the I've heard the argument. Um, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not necessarily in agreement with this, um, but I've heard the argument that I mean it's the same as the no child left behind yeah. idea that you you have. I mean that's where that came from. This teacher that had to give this one student thirty, regardless of his performance, right, right. is simply just encouragement, and the the no child left behind thing kind of just pushes the effort from the bottom part of the learning curve. It has the, the, the toughest students and that's where you put the most effort. And the argument is mostly that that seems like a wasted effort in that you need to cut your losses somewhere, even in, even in kids. Uh, this is typically like, it, it seems a little draconian, but yeah. it does have a little bit of merit in the sense that if you can't, you can't just throw dollars away uh, on the education system in any facet, so you kind of have to be careful. You can't, you can't spend all your money to try and make all the dumbest kids smarter. Excuse my language. And you, but nor can you spend all your money just making all the smarter, pushing all the smart kids because they're already kind of gonna do what they're gonna do, right? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's a double-edged sword in that sense. No. What do you think? Of, what do you think of this? Yeah. It's yeah. It's it's. Um, I mean. In all of these new, you know, the No Child Left Behind, every every ministry of education, every district comes up with their their latest, uh, you know, buzz theories mm-hmm. and the newest, latest, greatest methods for education. And in theory, many of them sound great. In practice, you know, how well do they work is, you know, maybe debatable. You do hate, I mean, a lot of it boils down to money, but you do hate to think that certain students are, oh, well, they, we don't have enough money, so we kind of just let them, you know, mm-hmm. sort of go by the wayside. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and then that's the reality of the money and uh, of the situation with uh, with education and how it's funded. But, yeah, there's no one great uh, best way to teach. Every student is different, and so I think... You know, a lot of times a common sense approach uh, <laughs> makes the most sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes these theories uh, get very highfalutin, but uh, aren't tested and grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. So, so we're we're about about at our uh, time here. I'd oh, like to okay. I'd like to uh, kind of throw one more thing at you, and, and this is this is kind of what got me interested in the idea of education specifically for uh, kids. Yeah. And uh, a while ago, there's this TED talk with uh, Logan LaPlante, uh, some 13-year-old kid who has the idea of hack schooling um, and championed by uh, Sarah Hodson. Um, and so the, the idea is that you have yeah, you have your common core, whatever. You, you do the, base, like the basic and you spend about half your day uh, half of the school day uh, doing doing that common core and then for the rest of the day you go and do other things other hands-on things and uh, you essentially you know uh, I think that Sarah Hodson has her kids doing that and it's a combination of a little bit homeschooling a little bit online schooling a little bit of the brick and mortar um, and then uh, and then a little bit of like going outside and as she says one of one of her kids is doing botany and knows how to grow all another one is into e-textiles and, and that's what they find interesting and they're they're you know like 11 year old taking college courses in, in, in coding and, and the, now these this this whole idea is, is developed around the silicon valley crowd so you can mm-hmm. kind of see that but it, it 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 really seemed like that is the best way to get kids to learn because they they are able to find find something that is enjoyable to them and explore that with the experts 
that and and you know the the idea is the mom would take care of her kids for a little bit and other kids because she knows about you know this particular subject and then somebody else would go and take care of the kids because they are say you know an expert botanist and, then, mm-hmm. and so everybody would be able to go and interface to these experts they get hands-on experience actually doing things i think uh there's like they said, um, when, how, how young should they be for the first soldering iron? And they're like, oh, uh, about five, maybe. You know? so, and and yeah. you would never imagine that in, in regular school. But, you know, they're, they're, you know, if you have that attention from, from the parents, and, and this uh, Sarah Hodgson, she's 40-hour work week with two-hour commute, um, and she's still able to go and do these things and, and, and get her, her kids educated in this way and uh and, and one of the one of the things that she says is like, the kids aren't really that gifted or smart or special because they're doing this type of education where yeah you have your basics done but you also have the interfacing to other people so i mean a strong and useful part of education is the socialization i think sure um sure in, in the early ages but I, I don't know uh like what are your thoughts on how how useful that is yeah, and, and I know that it might not be applicable to, like, the masses, but, right. you know, if that should be encouraged in in the people that have that kind of uh, drive, you know, and it would be a lot more parent-directed, but, uh, you know, because, you know, homeschooling is one thing, but if you have that combination and take advantage of the, say, online, because it's almost infinite now, you, you can't you can't really... There's too much information online. Yeah, you, know, you, can, yeah. you can find it all, and, and it's presented in a nice, you know, nice packages. It just comes down to the discipline. Yeah, it, no, it's a, yeah, very interesting. I hadn't heard of these people, but um, yeah, those whole concepts of uh, uh, homeschooling basically gives you that latitude to you know teach children some of the basic skills and math and reading and writing and science or whatever but then other opportunities to explore and go in depth into something and and i have many friends who do homeschool or have homeschooled and and they will yeah one person's an expert in uh, you know botany or biology and another is an expert in uh you know dressmaking or something and so those who are interested go and develop a real strong skill and specialization in or interest you know able to pursue their interest in a certain field um it's difficult to combine that with regular schooling of course in the masses and and you've got a common thing everyone should be doing this at the same time etc i think schools generally education is is open to some of that they're looking to expand they're having i mean when I was just leaving teaching, they were getting into various online courses so that a student would be in a room, but taking a course with, you know, 14 other people from five different high schools. Mm-hmm. And the course was being offered and taught by a, te- a teacher in a different high school. Okay. Um, and for reasons, maybe they didn't have enough students to offer that in each high school. Mm-hmm. And so they would spend a period in a room supervised being, doing this online learning. So there are some ventures that are happening like that, which are excellent. Um, yeah, then, I mean, I know people in the education system, etc., don't probably frown upon homeschooling. Um, I know they... Oh, really? Sort of, oh, yeah. It's a, well, it's sort of a threat to, to our education business, you know? Right. That's when you know that... That's when you know that things are going wrong, <laughs> when people react well, like... Like a CEO yeah, would or yeah. something. Well, it's, I mean, I tell you, I, I've always said, you put me in a room with, you know, 20 kids and 10 of them are homeschooled. I can pick out very shortly who all the homeschooled kids are. And what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's, well, how do you do that? That's, I, I don't doubt it. It's, it's, it's very, I, it's, 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 it, a lot of it is, is character character learning like the character development which everyone says oh we you know it's character education we want our kids to be mm-hmm. you know trustworthy reliable responsible independent hard-working self-motivated all these things i see those results happening in homeschool 
not so much in the education system. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, just just by the very nature of what happens, um, a lot of and students will rise up as regardless of what system they're in. Most students will perform well um, to their ability, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I mean, the reality in, in many schools classes, so much of the of the day is spent by trying to get students to stop talking and behave and correcting behavior and discipline problems and this and that and oh now it's lunchtime and recess and <laughs> you know the homeschool student who is who you know is wants to do it and has a parent who's you know a great guide and and hopefully you know has some knowledge themselves um within an hour hour and a half they can learn so much they will have covered so much that other kids in a school may be interrupted you know like they they may hardly get that all done in the whole school there's a whole there's a lot of distractions yeah in public school yeah i mean that again that's my opinion i've read a statistic that says that homeschool kids generally score 30 percentiles 12 15 to 30 percentiles higher than the average public school a fascinating a fascinating coupling statistic with that is that actually apparently homeschooled black students score uh 20 to 40 percent higher than their public school counterparts that's yeah and one one thing that i did see in my little research of this interesting it doesn't matter the education level income level or any people that are homeschooled are it it is a positive thing at least this is i think that the article is fairly biased naturally uh which yeah, when you look at peer-reviewed articles, yeah, you sure, hope it doesn't sure. get through. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the, 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 it, it basically said that these results aren't really affected by all these other you know, factors that you that we would think right uh, w- would be there. So, I mean, excellent. There's yeah, another but, podcast. I can yeah. get you in touch with all kinds of homeschooling parents and oh, yeah? kids and everything. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, I think that's uh, I think that's about all the time we we have, or at least it's well, your ears are probably heating up. Yeah, <laughs> these headset, my ears are on fire. But yeah, it's been very yes. enjoyable, and we've certainly covered a lot of topics. My goodness. Yeah, yeah. No, thank, thanks. Yeah, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much, Bob. It was really great to meet you. I'm glad we had you on. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Anytime. For round two. Yeah, for <laughs> round two. Yeah, well, we'll see. Of course, we'll, we'll probably come back to this well of knowledge that you have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right.